1 through 6. Zechariah 13, 1 through 6. Now, if you're keeping score, uh, as it were, we're getting very close to the end of Zechariah. Uh, in fact, chapter 14 is the last chapter we have here. Uh, once we're done with Zechariah, I believe we're going to move into Romans. Romans, so you can look forward to that. I know you're going to go home this afternoon, read the whole book of Romans, and study it vigorously in preparation. I know that that, that to be true, so I, I believe it in my heart. Zechariah chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 6. On that day there shall be a fountain open from the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sins and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his visions when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, where are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Suffering is a real thing that we all face. Each of us here knows personally someone who has suffered, maybe suffered through an illness, maybe has suffered through the loss of a loved one. Some are burdened each and every day with anxiety, with depression, with a sense of helplessness. But not only do we know someone, but we are those who have suffered. We have known the pain of searing loss. We have known the pain of illness. We know each of us those moments in our lives where we feel like nothing will ever be right again. Sorrow and suffering is something that we know well. This is what was read for us this morning from Psalm 88. This psalm, unlike all the other psalms, other psalms will talk about sorrow and they'll talk about suffering, but they'll usually have some turning point. But then, then God, no. This psalm ends with, my companions have become darkness. I love the psalms because the psalms teach us how to communicate with God. And guess what the psalmist is saying to you? It is okay to have times where you feel like nothing will be good. 
Last week we talked about mourning and sorrowfulness. This mourning and sorrowfulness that comes from seeing Jesus pierced. This mourning and sorrowfulness that is like unto one who has lost a child. But wonderfully and beautifully, chapter 12 and chapter 13 go together. We see here, as we saw last week, that both take place on that day. That day when God comes again. When he comes to reign and save the earth. They're linked thematically. We see sorrow here now moving to the answer for that sorrow. John Calvin says it this way. It was the prophet's object to show that the repentance of which he had spoken would not be useless. For there would be provided for them a cleansing by the blood of his only begotten son. So that no filth might prevent them to call on him boldly and in confidence. There are many today... And maybe you are one of them who are oppressed with feelings of worthlessness, with feelings of guilt, with feelings that nothing will ever go right again. Spiritual depression is something that seeks to rob us of joy. Why is it that so many are so mournful around us? And yet, if we look inwardly, we know the answer to that question because us, like others, have suffered terrible experiences. We can look back on our life and we can think of terrible things that have happened to us. Or we can feel the oppression of sin, either past sins or current sins, and they seek to bear us down they plague us every day and we are left with this question where is my hope in times of suffering i see the sorrowfulness of my sin but now what am i to do and this is what zachariah tells us today so we will see three things we're going to begin by seeing a fountain that cleanses second we'll look at a removal of idols And third, we'll see a removal of false prophets. This passage wonderfully begins with a promise. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin And uncleanliness. This is a promise that seeks to bring light to the darkened soul. You who are oppressed, this is the light for you. There is a fountain that is coming that will bring cleaning. In the Old Testament, there are various Things There are various rituals that the Old Testament priests would have to do to be clean. Uh, they would go and they would sacrifice animals. They would sprinkle blood. 
Blood was a sign of cleansing, but then there were also ritual washings. They would use water to signify this cleansing. Zechariah, being a priest, would have known these washings well. But he sees, he foresees a whole different kind of cleansing. Not just a sprinkling. When they did the ritual cleansing with blood, they would take a hyssop branch and they would dip it in the blood and then they would flick it, right? They would flick it in the specks of blood. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a fountain. It's a fire hose that's going to open up. Have you ever tried to drink from a fire hose? It's not easy. It's not possible. This fountain is going to flow out. This is a picture of grace being poured out in waves. This is the great remedy for the sorrow of those who look on the one they have pierced and respond in mourning. This fountain comes and cleanses sin. It says it cleanses uncleanness. And it's going to be made available to all. It says first to the house of David, but then to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you remember us looking at last week's passage, we really focused, the theme of the, even the title was, the one whom they have pierced. And we went forward and we looked at the New Testament and we looked at Jesus taken off the cross. And the centurion, seeing that he was dead, took a spear just to make sure. Remember? And they stabbed him in his side. And what flowed forth? Blood and water. The two things in the Old Testament used for ritual cleansing, blood and water, they were poured out from Jesus. They were poured out for us. And we begin to see a picture of something more. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says this, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkled of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God Christ's blood is so much better Christ's blood doesn't come with sprinkles it comes from a fountain He cleanses not just the outward, not just the body, not just the physical. He cleanses the spiritual as well. He cleanses the soul. And his sacrifice is better. The Old Testament sacrifices, how often do they have to occur? Over and over and over and over. And they never ended. Jesus comes and he sacrifices once for all for the removal of sin He has opened up this method of cleansing, even for those who crucified him, even for you. This cleansing brought forth the removal of sins. I'm going to use a few theological terms here. Uh, to describe how this removal happens. Uh, But in essence, what I'm going to say is this. We are removed both from the guilt 
and the power of sin. This is called propitiation and expiation. What, is the, what do these words mean? Propitiation means the turning aside of wrath. God's wrath that was put upon you is turned aside. It is satisfied by the blood of Christ. God's wrath arises from his holy character. Being holy, he must hate sin. We are sinful people. But God provides, he himself provides the sacrifice for sins. Because he loved us, he sent his son to die for us. So he sent the means by which the wrath of God would be satisfied. But then we talk about expiation. This speaks of the removal of sins. Not only is God's wrath satisfied, but our sins are removed from us. The stain and guilt of sin is removed from us. John Calvin says this, The sacrifice of expiation is that which is intended to wash sins and cleanse them that the sinner, purged of their filth and restored to purity of righteousness, may return into favor with God. This is what Jesus has done for you. Yes, we can talk about these fancy words, propitiation, expiation, these great theological words that I learned in seminary, and now I can show you that I know them, and you're paying, you know, you're your money's worth for your pastor because he knows these theological words. But in essence, this is what it means, that he has satisfied God's wrath, and he has cleansed you from your sins. We see a great picture of this in the story Pilgrim's Progress. I love this story. I read it as a kid. I did a, a paper on it on my senior year in AP English. If you've never read the Pilgrim's Progress, I think at one point it may still be the second most purchased book, second only to the Bible. It's a great story, this allegory. And you have this character. His name is Christian. He represents Christians, right? It's very, very forthright. It's not hard to follow. And he, at the beginning of the story, has this enormous burden on his back. And he walks around hunched with this huge and enormous burden. And this man by the name of Mr. Worldly Wiseman, who represents worldly wise men, comes to Christian and says, look, what you need to do, just indulge in worldly comforts. You can be moral, being moral is okay, but if you just indulge in worldly comforts, you're going to forget that burden on your back. Just distract yourself, and it'll go away. And Bunyan goes on to write this in his story. Until he came to a peak where a cross stood, a little below in the bottom was a tomb, When Christian reached the cross, his burden became loose, fell from his back, and tumbled into the tomb. I never saw that burden again. As he stood looking and weeping, three shining ones approached and greeted him. Peace, the first said, your sins are forgiven. The second removed his filthy rags and dressed him in rich clothing. 
And the third put a mark on his forehead and gave him a sealed roll. He told Christian to leave it at the celestial gate to enter the celestial city. Christ cleansing fountain is given to speak peace to the mournful and troubled souls. And we as well, while we don't have a physical burden upon our back, we all have had that spiritual burden. We feel the weight of sin. But our burden has been relieved. He has removed it from us. He has washed us in his blood. Zechariah goes on here to say, you have cleansing, you have the removal of sins. And when Jesus comes, when his fountain is open for you, several things will happen. First, he says, will come the removal of idols. With the coming of this cleansing comes the cleansing of the people and the land. God has saved them from, the sin, from sin's guilt and his power. And as he do this, he removes from us our idols. He says, you will no longer remember the names of your idols. They will not be even come to your mind. An idol, in essence, is anything we put before God, whether it be our jobs or our families or uh, even religion or possessions. And we today don't deal with idols necessarily in the exact same way there's a lot of similarities but they would literally have idols they would take wooden things and they would carve them or maybe out of brass or gold and they would literally worship these idols well we don't do that that's silly why would I carve a piece of wood and worship it oh those silly old people who lived long ago. John Calvin said this, and I've said it before, and I'll probably use it again because it's so poignant. He says that our hearts are idle factories. Idle factories. Josh, how many cars would you say Honda puts out a day? A thousand. A factory that builds cars puts out a thousand cars a day. Calvin says your hearts are idle factories. They are efficient and streamlined to create new idols. Each of us struggles with them. I think they begin by being wrapped up in this concept of the American dream. I have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And so we come and we, can, we say, I can rise from relative obscurity. I can found my fortune. Whatever that looks like for us, I can have my job I want. I can have the house I want. I can have the exact kind of family that I want. And this has turned into, I think, the last 20 or 30 years, the desire for comfort. We live for leisure. The goal of life is to work as hard as we can so we can do nothing. Sounds good, right? 
<laughs> we wear on our, our shoes the mantra of the day. Just do it. If it feels good to you, then do it. The ultimate goal for you as an individual, this is what the world tells us is, make sure that you're happy. Do the things that make you happy. If it feels good, do it. And then the world comes to us and says, don't you dare stifle my happiness. Why would you come in and bring all these rules and regulations that are oppressing my happiness? And Christ comes with his washing blood and he says, that is nothing but pure idolatry. You're no longer to live for such things. You're to live for him. He comes and he says, you will forget the names of idols. They are of no more consequence for you. And we live wholly for him. And that's the first step. But then he comes in and he says, not only will I remove false idols, false gods, I will remove false prophets, false teachers. And he says, so intense will be your love for God that you will turn on your own family if they speak against him, if they prophesy against him. This is what he says here. If a mother and father have a son who prophesies against God, they'll come to him and say, you will not prophesy against God. And not only this, it says they're going to kill him. That's what it says here. They shall pierce him and they will say, you are not going to prophesy against the name of the Lord. You will not lie in the name of the Lord. So intense is their love for their God that they are willing to give over even their own child. Now, this is very poignant, isn't it? Remember what we talked about last week? You will have mourning over your sin. You will be sorrowful over your sin, even as one who has lost a child. Remember that? And now it says, you will be so enamored and in love with your God that if even your own child speaks against him and prophesies and lies, you will pierce him. Not only this, these false prophets will be filled with shame. It says here, someone will come and say, how did you get these wounds on your back? And the real reason they have these wounds on their back is because, if you remember, uh, several weeks ago, Jeff talking about Elijah, right? And he's got these prophets to Baal. And at one point, what do these prophets to Baal start doing? To try to get Baal to cast down his fire and consume uh, the, the altar they'd made. They start cutting themselves. And they pour their blood on the altar. These scars they had gotten... In these type of practices. And they're saying, people come and say, how did you get their wounds? He's like, oh, I, I was at my friend's house and things got out of control. I, I got, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet of Baal. I'm not one of these false prophets. In fact, he's going to leave what he's doing. He's going to go find a job in the field and say, oh, yeah, I've always been here in the field working. They'll deny that they were ever prophets. There are still false prophets today. There are still those who speak falsely 
in the name of the Lord. There are many who claim to be Christians and yet misrepresent the gospel. On top of that, there are others who outrightly say that God is a lie. And yet Zechariah tells us there's a day coming on that day. On that day, they will be ashamed. They will try and hide from him. We live in a time of false prophets. We must pray that God will pour out his spirit This spirit that will bring sorrow, that will bring people turning to God. This is what Zechariah is talking about. Sorrow that produces repentance. Right before the sermon, we sang a song that was also the title of the sermon. There is a fountain filled with blood. You may or may not have heard this hymn before. I think it's pretty fairly common. What you may not know is that it was written by the man by a man by the name of William Cowper. William Cowper was not a Christian when he was born. At the age of six, he lost his mother to illness. This was very hard for him. Not too long later, later in, a little bit later in life. In quick succession, he would lose his, his father, his stepmother, and a close friend. They would all pass away. And at that point, he collapsed emotionally. He was institutionalized for depression. In this institution, he was under the care of a Christian man. And as he was under the care of this man, he was told the gospel and he was able to grasp the gospel. He was able to leave, but his whole life, his whole life, he struggled with depression, even trying to commit suicide on several occasions. And yet this man who knew sorrow, who knew suffering, penned these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I cannot help but know that he was intimately familiar with the words of Zechariah, wasn't he? Can you think, put yourself in his place. He's in this institution and he's recalling his conversion and in Verse 4 of his hymn, he says this. Ere since by faith, I saw this stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. He says, since that day, when I saw the fountain that came from Jesus for the cleansing that it supplied ever since that day, his redeeming love has been my theme. And even till the day I die, even though I suffer and I struggle with depression, even till the day I die, the redeeming love of Jesus will be my theme. Even in sorrow, even in despair. 
he penned these words of comfort. Zechariah here speaks comfort to the sorrowful soul, to those oppressed by sin, to those who are suffering through anxiety, through depression. There's a fountain filled with blood that has come forth from Jesus Christ. He has cleansed you. He seeks to cleanse you. He seeks to reconcile you to God, to remove from you all idols and all false prophets. Brothers and sisters, do you know the cleansing fountain of Jesus Christ? Then would your sorrow move to rejoicing? It doesn't mean that sorrow goes away. It doesn't mean that depression and anxiety and all the other suffering is gone in the blink of an eye. It means that we turn to him and we say, I know what Jesus has done for me. Do you not know this cleansing fountain? Turn to him. Be cleansed by him. Allow your suffering and sorrow to move to rejoicing, saying, I know what his wounds have done for me. I don't know about you, but Zechariah has been of a great encouragement to me to be able to preach through it, even as we're coming to the end. And it's been a joy to preach because it's the gospel. Over and over again, here in the Old Testament, we've been confronted with Jesus. See him once more. Be either refreshed for the first time or be refreshed for the thousandth time. But do not ignore his words. Hear them. Dwell on them. Come and know your Savior. Let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you have sent your Son both to remove our sins and to satisfy God's wrath that we may not wonder, that we may not worry, but we may have assurance of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, would we know, would we have a certainty? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.